The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oh, we've got a full desk for you today. Juliana Tattlebaum, Karen Cho, of course, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And this is Squawbox, and these are your headlines. Asian equity markets trading cautiously as investors await more clues on the Federal Reserve's next monetary policy move from Chairman Powell's testimony today. Constructive phone calls are held between U.S. and Chinese trade officials as the two sides resume efforts to resolve their year-long trade dispute. Chinese battery inflation unexpectedly flatlined in June, snapping in almost three years of growth and compounding slowdown concerns in the country's manufacturing sector. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt trade barbs over Brexit and the US diplomatic row in the battle to become the UK's next prime minister. And at this hour, Airbus looks set to become the world's largest plane maker as Boeing deliveries drop 37%. France denies a deal with Germany to back Mark Carney as the next head of the IMF. And Serena Williams and Andy Murray wow Wimbledon as they march into the next round of mixed doubles. Mixed finish on the street as investors continue to churn through their investment strategy. The big focus today really around what Jay Powell will say before Congress as he testifies on Capitol Hill. Investors have been waiting for this moment, the type of tone he will strike, whether he'll be more dovish than many had expected or, or whether he'll be more hawkish. So the all eyes on that testimony for the, the pace of rate cuts that are anticipated. The market is baking in a 25 basis point rate cut this month, some calling it an insurance policy, an insurance cut. However, not everybody's on the same page as to whether the timing will be this month or whether it could be later on. So all eyes on the, the timing of a rate decision and just how many, whether it will be one rate cut or whether it will be a series. So the market, you can see, has been a little bit softer in recent sessions. Yesterday was the down that was under pressure, still falling in the red, but some gains for the S&P and also the Nasdaq. Up about half of a percent on that trade. A little bit of appetite for Amazon in session. When it comes to other components of the markets, materials, uh, one of the laggards yesterday, that pulled the markets lower. But uh, you did see a consumer discretionary again at a fresh record close. So components of the market still picking up a little bit of activity. I want to take you to what you're seeing on yields as well. Investors are closely tracking this part of the markets. And uh, we had pushed lower on expectations of rate cuts. But uh, after the very strong farm, non-farm payrolls report Friday. Investors have just started to pair back some of those expectations, which has lifted the yields across the board from the twos, the fives, the sevens, the tens. Uh, you've seen a little bit of a pickup and uh, we've now seen for the two and the five at least hitting four-week highs. Uh, investors are weighing up those interest rate expectations with also any timing around a trade resolution. And we've had news that there have been discussions between both sides, uh, between the US and China. Asian markets on that note uh, continue to weather some weakness in inflation and that was a big focus for the Chinese markets today. Despite very strong food prices, particularly around pork, the market got a flat PPI reading, a flat factory gate price level for the latest month. Uh, we did see a little bit of movement at 2.7%, so still a decent level on CPI, but that 
also didn't show much movement despite all those pork price pressures that you've seen. The Chinese market trading water today uh, very close to the flat line along with Japan. The markets we are seeing modest improvement that's around Australia and Hong Kong, but a third of a percent higher in this session. The opening calls as we get set up for the European Trading Day, we look like we'll be moving north on some of the core markets, just tilting into the green as we begin the session. A slight red arrow on the Italian market this morning, but not much direction, as you can see across the board. And what could be a fairly big event risk for markets later on today? Yeah, absolutely. Today's a testimony, right? All eyes, as Karen said, on Capitol Hill as Jerome Powell begins that, that testimony in front of lawmakers. The futures market is pricing in a 100% chance, not one bit of doubt, 100% uh, chance of a quarter rate uh, point rate cut in July, despite stronger than expected jobs data for June, raising questions about the Fed's next move. Well, um, it's a slam dunk, isn't it? It's in the price, this hike. Is there going to be a 50 basis points? Would sound like an emergency hike if there were. That's been dialed back a little bit after the payroll on Friday. Um, I would suggest, though, that there has to be more of a wait and see approach from markets thereafter. I know people are penciling either a September or, or an October as well, so taking it for 50 basis points this year as well. But there are Fed members, and I'll uh, uh, nod my hat here to uh, Jim O'Sullivan, Chief Economist at High Frequency Economics, pointing out that the likes of uh, Philadelphia Fed President Harker, who's not a voting member, said there is no immediate need to move rates in either direction. The US economy continues to be strong. So just pulling on that, looking elsewhere, where was the data this week? Well, as you say, if we can start on Friday, strong payrolls data. Consumer credit on Monday, $17.1 billion. A very strong figure. No problem there. No red flags there as well. The jolts data yesterday, the all-time record on the job openings rate on jolts. The all-time record is 4.8%. We're only 0.2 of a percent away from that in the latest jolts data yesterday. So job openings, there are a lot out there that potentially could be seen as a forward-looking indicator. And I will just put finally a bit of data for my evidence here. The quits rate held steady at a, a solid 2.3. You don't quit your job unless you think you're going to get another job as well. So strongish data coming out. Now, I know some of the naysayers will say, look at the business surveys, look at the manufacturing surveys, and clearly there is greater weakness there. I cannot ignore that. But what I'm saying is there is at least a nuanced picture, possibly some of the data pointing to a strong US economy. Well, ultimately, I think it comes down to the question of whether Powell cares more about global financial conditions and the concerns there, which he cited, of course, in his last uh, in, in the last meeting, weak PMIs, low global inflation, weakening growth everywhere, or if he's more comforted by this strong jobs picture in the U.S. And that's the sort of fine balance for him to strike at this, at this testimony. Don't forget the market can be wrong, despite the fact that everybody's moved into one corner saying we're going to get the rate cuts this month. The market it can be wrong. The rate cut may not happen. And if you think about all the points you've raised about the strength and the jobs report is a real standout for me, you may get a Fed that decides to take more time, step back from the brink and not take an insurance policy, an insurance cut and wait for September because by September you might also have more traction on any trade resolution with China. So why wouldn't you just wait it out a little bit more for the Fed at this point? The other point I'd raise is that Jay Powell, as we know him in recent times, loves this paperwork. 
He's been very much on script uh, and many of his outings he wants to stay very much on a few set paragraphs. That's very difficult to do on the hill, so which is why it's such a big risk event for markets today. If he says something that strays from the script, you might see some market action and I think that's the thing to watch out for today because we don't have a lot of fresh news. If he delivers fresh news by accident, that could be interesting for markets. Um, I hear what you're saying. Uh, so some traders might say, well, why not then? You know, rather than why not wait and uh, see, why not just go there, put a bit of insurance in the market, give a bit of support to the economy by cutting rates, bearing in mind other policymakers around the world are doing so, and then potentially it comes back down to the dollar as well. I noticed earlier that the dollar index trading at a three-week high, despite the fact that the market is pretty dovish on its rate expectations this year. Do we want to touch on politics? I mean, it gets a little bit of heat off him too, doesn't it? Because Trump has been very aggressive against Jay Powell, not cutting rates. And when everybody would push back and say, you know, the Fed is independent, the Fed wants to be seen as independent, it's not going to really buy into that conversation. How However, uh, we all know how politics works and, and the heat and the pressure and the, the, the halls of power. Could you see a decision where there is an element of politics in pl- play where a rate cut is decided to be adopted at this point because it does stop some of that very aggressive conversation from the Hill, from Trump? And to your pol- political point, I think that it's important to remember he's speaking to Congress, who itself is a political body. So bearing in mind that he's not going to necessarily want to paint an extremely gloomy picture of the economy in front of uh, those political leaders. Yeah. Okay, we're going to drill deeper into uh, Jay Powell's testimony. In the next half hour, I can see just uh, just picking his head outside the green room is Jeremy Stretch, head of G10FX Strategy at CIBC Capital Markets. He'll join us to discuss. Good morning, Jeremy. Right, elsewhere, Juliana. Elsewhere, U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators have held a, quote, constructive phone call. Top Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow has said Beijing confirmed the conversation between U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and the Chinese Vice Premier and Commerce Minister. The two sides discussed implementing the consensus reached by Presidents Trump and Xi at the G20, China's Commerce Ministry said. Now, the move marks the restart of talks after a two-month stalemate. Speaking at the CNBC Capital Exchange event, Kudlow said President Trump expected China to immediately increase purchases of agricultural goods. President, in a good faith showing has indicated that we will um, cease any new tariffs, any new tariffs. Important point. Now, President Xi is expected, or we hope, in return for for our accommodations to move uh, immediately, quickly, during while the talks are going on on the agriculture front. It's good faith, but it would be real transactions. You mean big purchases of U.S. soybeans and that's correct. Nature soybeans, wheat, um, energy, possibly, and that's very, very important. Well, I'd like to bring in now Ginny Yan, Chief China Economist and Managing Director at ICBC. Thanks for joining us this morning. I, I want to talk about the Chinese side of things when it comes to these trade negotiations. How much political pressure is on President Xi to take a hard stance with Washington? Well, first of all, I think the key for China at the moment is still economy, stabilizing economy, keeping jobs uh, very tight, the labor market very tight as a priority. If he's able 
able to deliver that great. So we're seeing at the moment some um, impacts on the, the real economy. The fact that uh, a recent policy to boost consumption, recent policies to perhaps create more jobs um, is starting to stall a little bit because of the impact, these external impacts that we talk about. So I think there are political pressure, but mainly to keep things stable at home rather than for him to take a particular stance at uh, President Trump. So essentially the, the front-loaded stimulus that China pushed through at the start of the year, you're saying is, is not enough. It's being offset by these trade pressures. So that, that lessens the Beijing's ability to offset these impacts. So that in itself could be a motivation. And, and you're not, you're, you're, are you confident if they did engage in more stimulus, it still wouldn't be enough? Well, that's right. First of all, I think the, the most amount of stimulus that has been pushed through um, has really been on monetary policy. And that's had an impact. However, fiscal stimulus hasn't yet been brought through to the real economy. So I think even if stimulus or further stimulus is put in place, I don't think that will have any impact because it's a channeling of the stimulus into the real economy that's been the problem. Um, Ginny, we've seen this horrendous situation for pork producers in China. I mean, it's been really devastating for the industry, the, the, the swine flu story as well. And I'm just looking at the latest inflation data out of China and actually uh, still higher, uh, of course, as you would expect on, on the pork prices, but actually incredible volatility on vegetables and eggs. And we've seen fruit prices being moving yes. up as well. Uh, and this has made me think about um, how China is sourcing its resources now whether they be soft like we were just talking about there or whether it be harder resources as well and i was thinking about the volatility in the soft and whether actually we could start seeing that in the other side of the economy in the basic resources in products that are needed to keep driving the chinese economy as well are we going to see more volatility on some of those inputs going into the chinese economy going forward sure and and you're right i think it is definitely the fruits actually in the most recent month's data that has been driving driving up the volatility. And those supply side shocks are very seasonal. And obviously what we're seeing is there may be some temporary effects on these supply side shocks. Yes, you're right. I think diversification and long-term imports from other countries, etc. And this is why China's Belt and Road Initiative, for example, mm. comes into play, particularly as we're talking about energy and other types of resources. But I think for China, CPI, so basic inflation, is very much food-driven still, uh, 20 to 30 percent of the basket is very much a food base. If you look at the non-food, that has been very stable. Yes, so in fact, um, the inflationary state, uh, picture in China is still very, very stable. But, but it's this not is a pressuring. key point. It's mm. been stable, and uh, despite the concerns about the Trans-Pacific issues between the US uh, and China as well. So that is actually remarkable stability, despite, uh, again, huge tariffs going on on both sides in that trading relationship. Well, exactly. And I, as I've uh, stressed previously, the impact really on both economies is really about uncertainty. So it's Im impacting on investment decisions and yeah. consumption decisions, rather than these things such as uh, inflation and other factors. Some questions are marked about how much more stimulus China could bring to the table this year, how much it needs to bring, how much it actually will produce, uh, given it's got, you know, Belt and Road in the backdrop as well. Trade resolution could happen potentially at any given point. What do you think the script will look like for Chinese authorities for stimulating the economy for the rest of this year? Well, I think actually there is more pressure on the authorities not to stimulate too much more because, as I've said, tax, um, you know, easing of tax, fiscal policy is already being pushed out. It's about the implementation of these policies. 
And in fact, overstimulating the economy is bad because what you produce is financial risks. Um, you know, credit uh, pr produced through the banking sector. So it's really about balancing how much credit is pumped into the private sector, the SMEs, for example, and also how to really control, um, you know, particularly wage growth and how consumption can be maintained. Look, um, would you stay with us over the break as well? Because I really want to talk about the sophistication that is necessary in the Chinese financial sector in order to uh, perhaps offset some of those growth concerns as well. So we'll, we'll come back to all this and many other issues as well. Thank you. Uh, coming up on the show as well, Cisco ups its presence in network equipment with its $2.6 billion acquisition of Acacia Communications. More after the break and the podcast. <laughs> That's right. If you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. government will issue special licenses to companies wanting to seal goods to blacklisted sell goods to blacklisted Chinese tech giant Huawei as long as there is no threat to national security. The relaxed licensing requirements will only be permitted on goods already available on the global market. However, the purchasing of Huawei components or systems, including 5G, remains off limits. Shares of Acacia Communications surged after Cisco Systems agreed to buy the U.S. equipment maker in a deal worth $2.6 billion. Cisco said it expects the acquisition will allow its customers to utilize more data over high-speed networks. Uh, Arjun joins us live from Hong Kong. Arjun, you've been speaking to Cisco today about this latest acquisition. How does it fit into what is a very large organization? What's the grand plan for Acacia? Good question, Karen. Well, Acacia is actually a, a semiconductor firm which makes uh, chips that go into servers. Now, this is becoming increasingly important because of the shift to cloud computing from many businesses, but also uh, the fact that 5G, uh, which is an uh, area Cisco is working on uh, a lot in, uh, is promising to process huge amounts of data. There needs to be servers and there needs to be infrastructure to support some of that. So I had a chance to catch up with Guy Deirdrick. He's the CIO of Cisco to ask him a little bit more about the rationale behind this big deal. Let's listen into what he had to say. We're going from 25 billion connected things today to 500 billion connected things over the next decade. The primary requirements then moving forward are going to be data density, that is the ability to consume more and more data, speed, being able to access that data faster, and of course low power consumption, which is critical for IoT and a number of other factors associated with digital age progression. And Acacia ticks all three of those boxes for us. 
So this is really a, a 5G play. If you heard Guy Diedrich there set, talk about IoT, the Internet of Things, 5G, of course, promises to connect millions and millions of devices together, and that will result in huge amounts of data. So that, that's a big part of, of what Cisco is focusing on right now on this deal. But of course, against this uh, backdrop of this acquisition and the area Cisco is pushing is this trade war that continues to rage on between uh, the US and China. And of course, it's increasingly become a battle over technology and 5G has been dragged very much into that. You've heard President Donald Trump talk about 5G as a race. The US must win. Uh, Guy actually said in one part of the interview that this is not a race. This is something that will need to be rolled out gradually. And there's a lot of hype right now. And perhaps it's not going to be rolled out as quickly as the market expects. So I asked uh, Guy what kind of impact, if any, Cisco's seen from this ongoing trade tensions between the US and China. Let's listen to what he had to say. Cisco is a global company. We operate in 120 countries around the world. We have a very agile supply chain. We're able to respond to some market headwinds and some trade winds that may be coming through. Now, the, the trade wars don't benefit anybody. And we have to acknowledge that because when you deal with a program like I run called Country Digital Acceleration, where you're dealing with governments that have fixed budgets for 5G deployment and a number of other areas, if you have a trade war, then those prices just increase and it unnecessarily constrains their ability to do things like put in 5G networks. So we certainly hope that calmer heads will prevail. I know that they've come back to the table already just this morning, start thinking about new ways. Of, of resolving these issues. So you get a sense there that Cisco feels generally uh, prepared for this broader uh, trade war. They've been shifting some supply chains uh, outside of, of China as well to try to mitigate some of that risk. Um, but really, it, it's the 5G play. Cisco is behind the likes of Nokia and Ericsson, for example. And this acquisition, it hopes, will help boost its chances uh, in the 5G space as it tries to challenge some of those players and as 5G continues to roll out uh, across the world. Guys, back to you. Arjun, thank you very much for, uh, for that insight. Now, I want to get back to some fresh data we had come through on China overnight. Chinese factory inflation flatlined in June, snapping a near three-year growth run on the back of lower commodity prices and a struggling manufacturing sector. Consumer inflation was steady at a 15-month high, largely due to rising food prices. Now, uh, Jenny Yan is still with us, chief China economist and managing director from ICBC. Uh, so the, the, we've had another jump in the cost of, of pork come through into today's inflation numbers. We know the country's uh, pig farms have been hit by the deadly swine, African swine outbreak. Uh, and in terms of where China sources their pork from, would they be looking to import more from the U.S. if the China-U.S. trade war wasn't going on in the background? Potentially. Um, and probably other countries too, like the U.K. And that was quite apparent in the recent exchange with the U.K. So that's about diversification of imports of food uh, producers. However, that that's not going to overtake the amount of farms that's already producing uh, pork. You know, so I think it's about addressing those sort of issues. It's whether those people are able to continue their livelihoods, uh, able to contain the pressures and challenges that are currently um, a huge burden on the industry. So um, I think maybe we parked the inflation conversation there for now. Uh, yesterday we had some, uh, some pretty big corporate news come through from BASF, the German chemicals company. A lot of the weakness that drove their profit warning came from China, from China's auto industry. Uh, what, what's driv driving the weakness there in your view? And if we do see China engage in more t 
targeted stimulus, potentially fiscal stimulus, do you think that we could see a turnaround in the Chinese auto sector moving forward? Sure. And the over the majority of um, what the data suggests is that first of all, wage growth is very weak at the moment in China across sectors, state-owned enterprises, um, even migrant workers. They're seeing the growth of their wages really stagnant, if not um, falling, and that is a big problem. This is what's impacting on consumption globally, whether it's German cars, whether it's consumer goods, luxury items across the board. So many questions, and that again, really interesting what you just said because you've seen a slowdown in wages, which has become a problem. Now, I thought the double-digit wage increases we've seen over the last decade or so have actually become a problem in the other direction because it's made the Chinese competitive story less so. So when you've got U.S. senators going on about China, the fact is the competitive advantage has been eroding over the last decade because of those huge pay increases we've seen on an annual basis. But now it's abating. Surely that's a good news for the Chinese competitive story. Well, I think it's a double-edged sword, really, because first of all, when you have a slower wage inflation, obviously that means that first of all, you know, um, you have uh, some sort of uncertainty in terms of consumption picture, as I talked about globally. However, that said, you know, there is less pressure now on asset bubbles, for example. So house prices, property prices, for example, that's starting to do. And, and that is exactly what you're talking about. So it's a double-edged sword Absolutely, and it's two yeah. sides of the story. But I think it's having a real impact in terms of confidence, especially when we talk about policies to address stimulus. How do you stimulate wage growth is the number one problem and number one issue, I think, for the policy. We've got to leave it there. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.